This is the Incubator and the Neonatology Review Podcast. We are your study buddies for neonatology topics. I'm Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova Barbo. Welcome. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Daphna, how are you today? Uh, I'm doing really, really well. How are you doing? Because let it be known that you are recording on your birthday. <laughs> that is right. I feel uh, so much better today. It's my birthday. I, I, I couldn't care less. Um, <laughs> but thank you for acknowledging it. Um, listen, this is this is our first uh, subscriber-only episode. Mm-hmm. This is kind of fun. Thank you to everybody who subscribed, and welcome to... Uh, this side of the of the show. <laughs> yeah, we're excited. Anything to share before we begin doing some questions? Yeah, well, one thing I want to make sure people know is that um, the ABP did change the board specifications for this upcoming test. Um, so if you go to the abp.org website, you don't have to, you don't have to take it from me. You can see it yourself, but we'll, we'll talk a little bit about it. That effective for examinations administered March 1st, 2022 and after, of which our uh, board exam is for anybody taking mm. the exam on March 29th this coming year, um, that the yeah. board specifications have changed significantly. Um, most notably, I think MFM uh, yeah. was <laughs> basically equal to respiratory in, in previous mm-hmm. outlines. Um, and I kind of, I'll give you the big the biggies here so respiratory is the biggest still 14 percent cardiovascular 10 percent neurology and neurodevelopmental outcomes nine percent immunology and infectious disease seven percent nutrition nine percent and then almost all of the other um, gi mfm resuscitation genetics renal endocrine are five to six percent um hemong four percent h-e-n-t and skin three percent uh complex NICU management three percent basic farm two percent uh management of neonatal care systems two percent and scholarly activities in qi four percent and so just if those of us uh, making our study schedules just making sure that you can kind of account for that i think will be important yeah, I was not expecting them to take such mm. a dramatic turn. Mm-hmm. Uh, the MFM drop, the the, the MFM Huge. is falling out of favor. Huh? <laughs> That's right. Interesting. Anyway. But here we are. All right. Here we are. Um, all right. You want me, who's doing the first question? Uh, either way. All right. Let me start. So this is, um, we're, we're, we're continuing with pulmonary questions. Uh, this is question two um, of the pulmonary section of the Broski and Martin Q&A book. The question goes... Fetal lung fluid plays a critical role in lung development. Prior to birth, about 30% of fetal lung fluid is cleared from the alveoli and airways. Of the following, which anion slash cation is actively transported across the pulmonary epithelial cells to induce fetal lung fluid absorption prior to delivery? So you have five choices. First one is bicarbonate. Second one is chloride. Third one is hydrogen. Fourth is potassium. And last fifth is sodium. Do you need me to repeat the question? No, I think I got it. Okay. (laughs) So this is about 
so they could they could phrase this question a bunch of ways. Uh, how do you make fetal lung fluid or how do you uh, absorb fetal lung fluid? So um, unfortunately, this is one of those memorization questions that uh, the epithelial cells secrete sodium to induce fetal lung fluid absorption. So sodium moves across the cells um, from the air spaces um, back into the interstitium, and then uh, the fetal lung fluid follows sodium out. So E, sodium. Yes, you are correct, Daphne. <laughs> sodium is the right answer. Um, I think I think this is a tricky question, right? Mm -hmm. uh, because the question asks about the specific channels, the ENAC channels that mm -hmm. are supposed to have a different type of role depending on when you're looking at them. And... I think the critical um, point in the question is when they're saying prior to delivery. And when you're looking at these channels prior to delivery, you are absolutely correct. Sodium is being actively transported mm -hmm. from the alveoli into the interstitium, hoping to create an osmotic gradient really mm -hmm. to drive also uh, fluid out of the alveoli. Now, if you had looked, as you said, if you had looked at this from the standpoint of uh, not being prior to delivery, but in utero, um, then you would have seen chloride being actively secreted and transported across um, the uh, across the uh, epithelium into the um, alveolar space, and this in turn is supposed to help creating more fetal lung fluid. So yeah, so it's it's kind of tricky depending on when you're looking at it. If you're looking at it from um, the, the fact that sodium is being actively transported out of the alveoli is something that really starts happening really close to around the time of delivery and is not the case during the entire gestation. Um, yeah, so on page six of volume one of the books, there's there's good explanation when it comes to that. Okay, um, I have a mnemonic for you. Oh, yeah, definitely. Go ahead. Okay. <laughs> so chloride coming in creates critical fluid and sodium secretion sends it back out. <laughs> This is great. This is great. Thank you for that. Sodium sends it back out. This is awesome. Um, we'll see. This is actually very helpful. You're very creative when it comes to that. I am so, By the way, I am terrible at making mnemonics. I my mnemonics doing, tend to be long-winded, so here we are. My mnemonics tend to be convoluted. I tend to forget the mnemonic. I tend to forget what I was supposed to remember, and it ends up being easier for me to just remember the thing. Uh, so yeah, I, I welcome your uh, creative mnemonics. Should we talk a little bit about the how the, the fetal lung fluid clearance is, is happening? Yeah, so I, that's what I was going to say. There there definitely is likely to be a question on, on the clearance of fetal lung fluid. Mm -hmm. And I remember that it is removed in three parts so by a, about a third so prior to birth 30 percent that's when you really um are just um as ge the gestation progresses and the the fetus becomes more mature um those enac channels um change so that there's active mm -hmm. transfer of sodium from the alveolar spaces into the interstitium and that leads to absorption of about 30 percent one third of the fetal lung fluid prior to delivery 
And then during active labor, there are a number of components that um, help the second third, so another 30% of the fetal lung fluid um, to be cleared from the alveoli and airways. So compression of the fetal chest, so just mechanical compression from uh, Mm -hmm. labor and from delivery, forcing fluid out of the lungs into the oropharynx, which I think a lot of people think this is the predominant um, way that we, we remove fluid, but but it's not. It's just one of one of the many ways. Um, two, yeah. the catecholamine surge at the onset of labor, which further increases the transepithelial transport of sodium. So the labor hormones help uh, the sodium movement, um, and the other hormones um, also kind of peaking at the same time. Higher cortisol and higher thyroid hormone concentrations induce additional transepithelial sodium transport. And then the final third postnatally um, of the fetal lung fluid is accomplished by lung distension. So just uh, with the lungs feel, filling with air with those first few breaths leading to an increase in transpulmonary pressures, drives fluid into the interstitium. There's increased lymphatic oncotic pressure and Overall, the fetal alveolar protein is very low. So that, again, moves um, fetal lung fluid across a gradient um, out of the alveoli. And then finally, crying. So what we try to do at the at the warmer, getting the baby to cry, um, further increases the intrathoracic pressure and keeps those alveoli uh, wide open, forcing fluid out of the al- alveoli and into the um, adjacent vessels. So one third, yeah. one third, one third. Yeah, absolutely. That's the way I remember it as well. I think it's like, I think it's, it's supposed to add up to a hundred. So, so like two of them are supposed to be 35, but it's roughly a third, as you said. And uh, yeah, mm-hmm. um, yeah, mm-hmm. I have nothing else to add. This was, I think this is a very high yield uh, question. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Okay. Okay. Question three. You liked well, this question. Oh, we're doing, yeah. Yeah, I did. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, and I, I need your help with this question. So. All right. See, this could be, I agree, this is a tricky question. So I'm glad that we review it. Even clinically, I think this is a very important uh, clinical finding. So at 12 hours of age, a term infant develops unequal chest wall movements during spontaneous breathing with moderate retractions noted on the left side and mild retractions on the right side. The right chest appears to collapse more with inspiration than the left side. What is the most likely diagnosis in this infant? So choices are A, bilateral diaphragmatic paralysis, B, diaphragmatic hernia, C, left-sided diaphragmatic paralysis, D, right-sided diaphragmatic paralysis, or E, vocal cord paralysis. Yeah, so this question so all is the interesting, choices. right? All the choices are there, but I don't think they're, I don't think it's, it's, I'm not, I was not, I'm not struggling with, with all the choices, but we, Mm -hmm. we have a baby that's in respiratory distress. We see that there's moderate retraction on the left side, mild on the right. So there's a difference there. The, the chest wall movements are unequal. And then they say this, that's a critical piece of information. The right chest Mm -hmm. appears to collapse more with inspiration than the left side. And I had, and again, I had answered C. So mm-hmm. I was not really hesitating. I was hesitating. Bet- I, I realized that this was a case of unilateral diaphragmatic mm-hmm. paralysis. Um, I was not really tricked by the bilateral diaphragmatic paralysis. I think things would have been more homogeneous. Mm-hmm. Um, and you would have seen like this abnormal movement of the belly and stuff. Um, 
diaphragmatic hernia is not usually the way this, this presents and vocal cord paralysis either. So I was hesitating between C and D. Um, mm-hmm. I knew it was unilateral diaphragmatic paralysis. Now, the big, the big question was, is it left-sided or right-sided? Or right-sided, yeah. And, um, and I went with left-sided because I was thinking um, that the right chest appears to collapse more with inspiration than the left side. And so I went with left-sided because that's sort of what made sense to me. So the answer, and I got, I did the same thing you did, but the answer is right-sided diaphragmatic paralysis. Um, and so we'll talk about why. So you, it's easy to think that. You, so you have to think both what is the diaphragm doing and then what is our clinical finding? So I think that's mm-hmm. the key picture. So when you have a unilateral diaphragmatic paralysis, often associated with phrenic nerve injury, um, trauma during birth, or frequently seen, not frequently seen, is is commonly seen <laughs> when we see it after cardiothoracic surgery. So what's happening is that the diaphragm on the affected side is not doing what it's supposed to do. So usually the diaphragm drops in inspiration because the lung is getting bigger. So the diaphragm on the affected side rises with inspiration and falls with expiration when it is paralyzed. So it does the opposite of what you expect. So that's called the key and box key in box sign but the affected side clinically collapses with inspiration because the diaphragm is rising it's not um it's not dropping like you expect so the Mm -hmm. lung is in effect much smaller on that side and the other side is um the lung is filling much more than the affected side so that's why we say that it collapses Uh Uh-huh. So the affected side will appear to collapse with inspiration because normally in inspiration, you'd expect the the lungs to fill with air and the chest to rise. So if the diaphragm's not doing what it's supposed to do, you will not see that side rise. In fact, you'll see it collapse with inspiration. That's what threw me off because they Mm -hmm. said the right chest appears to collapse more with inspiration than the left chest. And Mm -hmm. I think this threw me off. But basically... Uh, the side that collapses more is the side of the uh, paralysis. Correct. And they gave us another clue. They said that the baby had moderate retractions on the left side and mild retractions on the right side. So the side that's affected, the diaphragm um, portion that doesn't work as well or at all, um, will have less movement. And so that's Mm. why the baby has more symptoms on the left side because that diaphragm is moving. So we can see retractions more readily. When the diaphragm doesn't work, we will see less symptoms on that side. Um, so that, that I think is, is the key. The other thing to note is that the unilateral paralysis usually involves the right diaphragm. Um, mm-hmm. When it happens, it tends to uh, involve the right diaphragm. So yeah, the, the if, answer, the if answer you're really key not said, sure. Said, the answer key said nine to nine one. To one. Yeah. I had forgotten that. That's, that's pretty dramatic. So if you're not sure, <laughs> pick pick right diaphragm I guess so let me let me summarize so right side is more often affected Mm -hmm. usually if we see this it's after cardiothoracic surgery or after like some birth trauma Mm -hmm. correct Mm -hmm. and then in terms of the clinical appearance the side that will show more respiratory distress meaning the side that will have more retraction is usually the not the affected side Mm -hmm. Mm 
-hmm. And then the side that collapses more is the affected side. Mm -hmm. You okay. got it. I remember. I got it now. Okay. That was very <laughs> and helpful. And the best things we can do for this baby is supportive, um, positive airway pressure, mechanical ventilation if needed, and um, very rarely babies um, who don't have a quick recovery or have significant distress need surgical plication. The other thing I wanted um, to talk about is the findings of some of these other um, clinical pictures. So bilateral yeah, sure. paralysis. So those babies um, are, won't be unequal. They'll tend, like you said, more homogenous. You won't see one side versus the other. These babies can have obviously significant respiratory distress because the, the diaphragm doesn't do what it's supposed to do. Um, and so many of those babies will need to, to, to be intubated um, to manage their respiratory symptoms. Um, symptoms of congenital diaphragmatic hernia, which we will return to at a different show, <laughs> but clinically I mean, those week, babies, we, we have this week, yeah, this week. Yeah. yeah, we have questions on it this week. Um, clinically those babies do have respiratory distress, but you wouldn't expect it necessarily to be unequal, even though, um, the herniated contents tend to just be on one side of the chest. But these babies, the big buzzword is a scaphoid abdomen, absence of breath sounds on the affected side or hearing bowel sounds on the affected side and the shifted heart sounds, um, that indicate some space occupying lesion on the affected side. And then symptoms of vocal cord paralysis, um, uh, they can present with like an extra thoracic upper airway obstruction and strider. Uh, many babies present with weak cry. These babies can have respiratory distress as well, especially if it's a bilateral paralysis. Um, and uh, frequently um, they are missed until feeding difficulty secondary to aspiration. So those other pathologies didn't really fit with this clinical picture. That's very helpful. This was, I think this is it for today, Daphna. Two questions. That's it, buddy. I think it was a, there was a lot of <laughs> high-yield stuff, so um, mm -hmm. I think this is good. Thanks, everybody. Okay. See you tomorrow. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Incubator and Neonatology Review Podcast. If you like our show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We would love to hear from you, so please feel free to reach out to Daphna and I via email by sending your messages to nicupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Twitter at NICUPodcast. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you.